I extend my uh, the morning welcome uh, to you. It's great to see so many new faces at Smack this morning. Uh, terrific to have you with us. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, if you've closed your Bibles, please do open them back up to James uh, chapter 1. That's what we're looking at this morning, verses 19 to 27. You should have got an outline uh, when you came in as well. It'd be great if you wanted to pick that up, if you want to uh, get an idea of where the sermon's going or make some notes. There's an outline just on the inside uh, of that notice sheet. So please do make use of that if you would like. Now you have to bear with me a little bit this morning. I've had a sore throat uh, all week, so if I drink water a little bit more than I normally would, I'm sorry, uh, but otherwise I won't be able to speak, so sorry about that. As we start, shall we pray? (coughs) Heavenly Father, thank you that we can meet as your people in this place now around your word. Please would you give us ears uh, to hear it. Please would you give us hearts that would receive it. And please strengthen us to be carrying it out in our lives in the coming weeks. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if you can recall a time when you've been deceived, when you've ever actually deceived yourself. A few years back, I convinced myself that if you put a tooth in a glass of Coke, it would dissolve in one day, just in 24 hours. Put a tooth in a glass of Coke and it would dissolve in one day. And a few months ago, I foolishly decided to share this information with a few people around dinner. Little did I know that Pastor Andrew's little daughter, Hannah, was losing her teeth at the time. And she heard about what I said. And so she ran up to her mum, Judy, and says, I want to see if what Tim said was true. So they took one of her teeth, they put it in a glass of Coke, and shut it in a cupboard overnight. The following day, Hannah runs up, opens the cupboard. She's really excited. And then she sees that nothing's happened. The tooth is very much still in the glass of Coke. The following day, she comes up to me and she says, Uncle Tim, wrong, wrong, wrong. Wrong, wrong, wrong. That's what she has to say to me. You see, I had deceived myself. I was totally mistaken. I don't know where I picked that fact or whether I just thought it up myself. But I was actually shown to be quite a fool, uh, and Hannah certainly showed me that. Well, today, James is going to show us that actually, as Christians, we can very easily deceive ourselves if we're not careful. We can very easily be mistaken. And James gives us the antidote to self-deceit, to mistaking what it means to be living faithfully as Christians. Uh, Chris reminded us last week that we can deceive ourselves into thinking that God is bad. We saw back in chapter 1, verse 16, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father. And today, James is continuing this theme of self-deception. We see in chapter 1, verse 22, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. Or later in chapter 1, verse 26, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, deceives his heart. And as I said, this morning James is going to show us the antidote to self-deceit for the Christian. It's the word, God's truth to us. We have part of it before us today in the letter of James. And James goes on to tell us what we need to do with the word to avoid deceiving ourselves. We're to firstly listen to the word, 
Secondly, we're to receive the word. And then thirdly, we're to put it into practice. And at the end, we'll see some practical outworkings from that. But that's the outline for today. Listen to the word, receive the word humbly, and put it into practice in your lives. So come with me to chapter 1, verse 19. Let me read. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God requires. Well, here's James's first instruction for us if we're going to avoid deceiving ourselves. He says, listen, listen, listen. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. James knows that many of the people in the church he's writing to aren't doing this. They're not listening. Rather than that, they love to be heard. They love to speak out instead. We read later in chapter 3, verse 1, that a number, of, a number of them are eager to be teachers. But as for listening, they're not so great at that. Now, James's letter is littered with examples of the church not listening and so falling into error. There's improper judging. There's wicked speech. There's fighting. They're speaking evil against one another in chapter 4. They insist on speaking rather than listening. And so, they become angry with each other. That's the conclusion James puts out. They become angry. That's often the result of poor listening, isn't it? Rash speaking. The result is we get angry with each other. Most angry words start because we don't listen properly to one another. So James says, be slow to anger. Now, he doesn't say you mustn't get angry at all. Uh, there's an anger that is justified. Uh, we read about that in the word, in God's word itself. God is very angry at sin, at the guilt that we have of rebelling against him. He hates seeing justice perverted. He gets very angry at that too. And in the same way, we will no doubt get angry when we come across injustice in our lives. I know um, some Christians who have shared when I've done Bible studies with them how they get very angry at work because they've got their fellow workers and their fellow workers cheat and they suck up to the boss and they get the promotion that they don't really deserve. While these guys are just working hard and keeping quiet. They get cheated out of that promotion. They get quite angry and justifiably so. There's nothing wrong with being angry about those kinds of things. But friends, this isn't the kind of anger James is talking about in verse 20. You read it. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God requires. It's a foolish and unjust anger coming about because we act before we listen. We deal badly with a situation only to think it through later. But James warns us that we mustn't do this because it doesn't bring about the righteousness that God requires of us. It will hinder us growing into the people that God wants us to be. So we're to be quick to listen and slow to speak. And what we need to be listening to is God's word. Through it, we came to understand what it means to be a Christian, to trust in Christ. But the word isn't finished with us once we've just made that first commitment to trusting Jesus as our Lord and Saviour. We don't say, right, that's it, uh, job done. Don't need to listen to it anymore. Don't need to read God's word. 
Well, that would be like a couple deciding to not speak to each other after they said their wedding vows. It just wouldn't make sense. No, we're to listen to God through his, li- through his living word. In Psalm 81, as we read just a bit earlier, we read how God desperately wanted his people to listen to him. They could have saved themselves so much trouble if only they had listened. We must be quick to listen to the word and slow to speak. So are you listening? Not just to me right now, not just listening to me. That's one great way in which we can listen to God as his living word is preached Sunday after Sunday. But what about during the week? Are you actively listening to God? Are you reading your Bible? Why not pick up some explore notes uh, from the back afterwards if you're struggling with having a decent quiet time with reading the Bible on a regular basis? We've got to make sure as Christians that we are listening to God through his word. Or secondly, we have to humbly receive the word. Humbly receive the word. Come with me to verse 21. Verse 21. Therefore, put away all filthiness and meekness. Oh, sorry, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. The implanted word. When I read those words, it reminded me of the parable of the sower. Do you remember it? God's word is described as a seed which is scattered in a field, and the seeds land on various types of soil uh, which uh, represent various uh, conditions of the human heart. And the third type of soil is described as thorny ground. Uh, the thorns grow up with the seed and they choke it. So the, f- the seed itself, God's word, becomes unfruitful. And Jesus explains this parable to his disciples a little bit later. He says, And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear. But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and the fruit does not mature. You see, as we listen to the word, it requires room to grow in our hearts. And the desires of the world can have a terrible dampening effect on God's word growing, if we allow them to. So James says, for good reason, in verse 21, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. In other words, get rid of all that is evil in your lives. Fertilize your heart for God's word. But how do we do that? How do we clean up our hearts? Well, actually, it happens as we listen and receive God's word. Last time, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I revealed I was a big fan of films, that I especially liked films set in medieval history. Well, that's true, but I also like sci-fi films. And one of my favourite sci-fi films is the Back to the Future series. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's a terrific, it's a really, really fun series to watch. In it, it's a story of how Marty, a teenage kid, and Dr. Emmett Brown, a mad scientist, successfully build a time machine. They go all over the place, all the different, different times. They make it out of a DeLorean, this really, really cool car. And at one point, Marty goes back to the year 1985. He's in the Wild West with cowboys and Indians. And just by coincidence, he bumps into his ancestors, his great-great-grandmom, his great-great-granddad, and they invite him over for dinner. So there they all are, sitting around the dinner table. It's very surreal. And Martha, Marty's great-great-grandmother, begins to pour something from a jug into Seamus's glass. It's murky, it's brown, and it looks really, really bad. Uh, Marty's just sitting there, 
in amazement as he watches his great-grandfather Seamus begin to gulp it down. Seamus notices the expression on Marty's face. And he says to Marty, What's the matter, Marty? Have you never seen water before? For Marty's ancestors, back in 1985, water was brown, and that was fine, because that's all they knew. They didn't have any special filtration processes. They didn't know what clean water looked like. Everyone drank dirty water, so that's what they did. But for Marty, that water was undrinkable. He wouldn't touch the stuff, let alone swallow it down. Because Marty was from the future. He was from a time when, he knew, when people knew what clean water actually looked like. Clear, transparent, colourless. Well, sometimes we as Christians can be a bit like Marty's grandparents. We accept uh, the world's filthiness as something not so filthy. But as we listen to God's word, we start being challenged. We start to learn how the standards of the world are so different from the standards of the word. Marty didn't touch that filthy water because he knew what clean water was. Well, God teaches us what it means to be clean through his word as we humbly receive it. So are we going to do that? As we listen, as we read God's word, are we going to humbly receive it? Are we going to allow it to sink down? Are we going to, allow it to, are we going to receive things when it has hard things to tell us? Allow it to dig down deep, take root, changing our understanding, our thinking? Or... There's the other choice. We can ignore it. We can forget it. We can not take proper notice of it. And not make any effort to really let it sink in. We live in a world which will choke the work of the word in our lives if we allow it to. We must not be those who not only listen to God's word, but humbly receive it. Now, it's a gradual two-way process. As we receive the word, we will understand what it means to be clean. And then, as we clean ourselves up, we will make more room for the word. So we need to be paying very close attention to what the word has to say. We're not to treat it like a newspaper, like read once and then just completely forgotten the next day. We should be meditating over it. We should be taking time to memorize it, making sure it sinks down deep, and becomes a part of us. I find it helpful sometimes to write down one key verse during my quiet times in the morning. I try and memorise it, and then at the end of the day, I'll test myself to see if I can remember that verse. God's will is that we study his word so that it becomes a part of us. But finally, James gives us stage three of what we're to do with the word. We've listened, we've received it, it's now becoming more a part of us. And he says, now you must translate this into action. We are to do the word. This is the final thing we need to do to avoid deceiving ourselves. Do the word. Verses 22 to 24. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away, and what at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Here's the other way in which we can deceive ourselves as Christians, in which we can be very foolish. 
to listen to the word, to even receive it, but not to put it into action, not to change in the light of it. James uses this brilliant metaphor uh, of a mirror uh, to describe this. You see, uh, we often like to look in the mirror, especially when other people aren't looking. We do like to look in the mirror sometimes. And as we do, we receive two different messages. The first message is, this is what you look like right now. And then the second message is, this is what you should look like. So when I wake up at around 10 in the morning, I'm kidding, not 10, but when I wake up and struggle up out of bed, I'll get a shower. And immediately afterwards, I'll take a shave, and then I'll look in the bathroom mirror. Now, first thing in the morning, when I look in the mirror, it's not that pretty. Well, not for me anyway, it might be for you, but not for me. I'll shave, wash my face, and then I'll look in the mirror again. Because sometimes, somehow, and I don't know how I manage this, I manage to get shaving foam on my earlobes. It's, it's very strange, but that's what I manage to do. It's really silly. I try to avoid it, but sometimes it just happens. So I've just shaved, then I check myself in the mirror, and here's where the double message comes in. First one, Tim, you have shaving foam on your, ear, on your earlobe. Second message, Tim, you should wipe the shaving foam off your earlobe so people don't think you're a crazy person. Now, most of the time, that works. I receive the second message, I act on it, and I wipe that foam off. But sometimes, I'm like this fool that James describes in verse 24, and I forget to do anything about it. I go out and I face the humiliation of having shaving foam on my face until someone kindly reminds me to remove it. When we look in the mirror, we have to act on what we see. Because what we see is not only what we are, but it's what we ought to be as well. Well, God's word, we're told, is just like a mirror. It convicts us of what we are, and it shows us what we should be. And just like reacting to that mirror, we must respond to God's word with action. What we learn, we need to put into practice. I want to introduce you to a couple of characters. The first one is, you might not be able to see him, the first one's Knowledgeable Nigel. He's up on the screen. Now, Knowledgeable Nigel loves reading his Bible. He goes to cell groups, every single one of them. He goes to all six of them during the week. He's a very regular attendee at church. He loves discussing deep theological issues whenever he can. He revels in words like eschatology and Christology and soteriology. But Nigel has never explained the gospel to a friend. He thinks the Feed the Needy program on a Wednesday evening held at the church is just a complete waste of time. Time he could better spend studying his Bible. Being a Christian for my, Nigel means simply knowing it all, understanding how the Bible fits together, being able to explain it with contextual accuracy. But he's completely missed the point. Yes, it's very important that we know our Bibles as Christians. It's important that we know how to interpret them correctly and apply them appropriately. But that's just it. Knowledgeable Nigel might know the correct ways to apply the word, but that's where the story ends for him. He never actually does it. He reads the Bible day in, day out, but it never makes a difference to his actions in his life. He comes to church Sunday after Sunday to hear the sermon, but there's no change during the week as a result. Friends, God has given us his word that it might change us so that we will be growing to be more like him. 
That is God's purpose for us, to be more like him every day, in the way that we think, in the way that we speak, and in the way that we act. God's word demands us to change. When Andrew and I and others preach up here at the front, we are hoping that we're going to move you to change as we teach God's word. It's not purely theoretical teaching. No, this is life-changing stuff. So we mustn't look at the Bible like an academic textbook. It's been given to us by God both to save us and to grow us up as Christians for his glory. But there's another extreme that we need to avoid as well. We need to be putting our Bibles into action, but there's something else we need to avoid as we do that. Uh, Meet Action Annie. Oh, she's nearly up on the screen. Now, Annie is a very active girl. You'll see her at every social event put on by the church. She'll be helping with the Feed the Needy programs. She belongs to the Save the Wells campaign. She has a column in the Daily Star which constantly writes about the injustices going on in Malaysia. But Annie doesn't have much time for the Bible. She sees it as rather stuffy. It's rather boring, really. She's not that interested in cell groups, listening to the sermon on Sunday, or taking time to read and meditate over God's word during the week. She'd much rather just go and do good things. And then one day, uh, tragically, she gets drunk at a party. Uh, She sleeps with a guy she only met that night. And the following day, she feels incredibly guilty about it. But instead of confessing to God, trusting in Jesus' death in her place, she despairs. She thinks she's blown it. There's no way that she's good enough for God now. You see, she's forgotten about grace. That her right standing before God doesn't depend on her righteousness, on her good works, on her moral action. Her right standing before God depends on Christ, on what he has done on the cross for her. She forgot that no matter what she did, no matter how far she fell, God would forgive her through the death of his son. But she can't bear to to show her face in church now. She stops getting encouragement from her Christian friends. Eventually, she just packs it all in. Friends, we mustn't treat the Bible like a general knowledge book and fail to put it into practice. But equally, we must never, ever abandon the Word, forgetting its fundamental work, to grow us up and keep us going, keep us maturing as Christians, to keep us remembering that we are dependent on Jesus for our right standing before God, not ourselves. On to our final heading. James shows us what listening, receiving, and doing the word will actually look like in practice. That's what we have in verses 26 to 27. Read with me. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, many people down through the centuries have accused James of being far too works-orientated, that he bolsters the false idea that we can work our way to God. If we work really, really, really hard at being good people, then he'll accept us at the end of the day. That's what we often hear, uh, think, when we hear the word religion, isn't it? An endless struggle to be good enough for God. Well, if that is what 
If you're here today and you think Christianity is about being a good person and making yourself okay for God, please listen more closely. Christians do not believe that anyone can be good enough for God through works. The Bible makes that so clear to us. A Christian isn't someone who is trying to be good enough for God. A Christian is someone who knows they're not good enough for God. They're guilty of rebelling against him. They're guilty of sin. And no matter how hard they work, no matter how many good things they do, they can't deal with that issue themselves. No, instead they have to trust in something else. In Jesus and what he has done on the cross for us. We are made right with God through relying entirely on what he, what he has done. Dying on the cross for us. Taking the punishment for our sin so that we might know God again. Please don't think that when James says true religion here is about making yourself good enough for God. It's not. James knows that true religion is the outworking of a faith that we've been given in Jesus. Not something that we do of our own accord. It's the result of a heart that has been changed by God working by his word in us. That's true religion as far as James is concerned. He knew the basis of how we are saved through trusting in Christ alone. We only have to look down in chapter 2, verse 1. He reads, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. As you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. James was a man of faith, not of works alone. But as we've seen, genuine faith means listening, humbly, humbly accepting, and then doing God's word. So there must be a change in the life of a Christian. And here James gives us a few examples of what that will look like and what it won't look like. In verse 26, we, we're given a man who thinks he is religious. He thinks he is faithfully working out God's word. That he's a doer of the word. But there's a big problem. What he thinks and what he says doesn't add up. We're told he doesn't bridle his tongue. In other words, he doesn't control it. James doesn't tell us exactly how he doesn't go about controlling his tongue. Maybe he's thinking of the problems that he'll speak about later in his evil, about boasting or speaking evil to his fellow brothers. Either way, this man's speech doesn't fit his claims. It doesn't fit with his convictions. He is a self-deceived man, totally mistaken. He thinks he's something he is not. He thinks he's a faithful doer of the word. But really, he isn't. And James has some really hard-hitting words for this man. He says to him, read with me down in uh, verse 26. He says to him, this person's religion is worthless. This person's religion is worthless. It's pitiful. It's futile. It's nothing. And that's really serious. Because true religion, as far as James is concerned, is the result of a genuine faith. It's the evidence that God is at work in the human heart. If the outworking is false, if it's worthless, then this very man's security in Christ, the very faith that he claims to have, may well not be there. A faithful outworking of the word will affect our speech. Now, did you notice what God called James, uh, what James called God in verse 27? Look at it again. What's James called God there? It says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father. 
was God the Father? And he doesn't do that for just any old reason. He does it for a very good reason. Because being doers of God's word will involve modelling him. That is what will happen as we listen, receive and do his word. His desires actually become our desires. Especially in relation to how we treat others. James gives the example of widows and orphans in verse 27. Ones who are absolutely dependent on outside support. Who cannot help themselves. Well, a true work, outworking of God's word, as far as James is concerned, is us being concerned for people in that situation. Because God our Father has shown us that same love. He's shown us that same care and concern. He cared for us when we were helpless. He gave his son to die for us when we were facing his judgment on our sin. We were lost and he found us. He cared for us. He gave his only son to die for us. And he expects us to be treating others just the same, with the same sacrificial and unconditional love. Are we doing that? Are we looking for opportunities to care for those who cannot care for themselves? When they arise, are we acting on them? Are we modelling God's love in this way? Well, James says that is one of the genuine results of listening to, receiving, and putting God's word into action. Well, finally, James says that true religion involves keeping yourself unstained from the world. Keeping yourself unstained from the world. I have a friend uh, back home in the UK. Uh, we've known each other for a very long time, since the beginning of my high school years. Uh, he was of great encouragement to me. I, was, uh, I went into my school a year later than everybody else, and he took me under his wing, as you like. He uh, adopted me as his friend, and really supported me when I was finding things tough. I found out uh, that he was a Christian, or at least he claimed to be a Christian. Uh, we started going to the same church together. I saw him as a fellow brother, living for the Lord. Well, then one day, uh, my friend became involved with a girl. She was very pretty, and she had a lovely character. She wasn't a Christian. And as my friend became more and more involved in this new relationship, well, he stopped going to church. He became less involved in the activities of school, such as the Christian Union. Didn't really show up to that anymore, either. He didn't really want to talk about God with me anymore. I think if I were to ask him now whether he believes the gospel, whether he's trusting in Jesus as his Saviour and his Lord, if he was being honest, he'd say, no, I don't think I am. You see, my friend decided that instead of remaining unstained in the world, he would compromise. I'm sure he thought in his own mind that he could serve God and also have that worldly relationship. He could be a doer of parts of God's word, but maybe just neglecting that one little bit. Honouring God in everything else, just leaving out that one thing. In the end, he fell away. And I hope and pray that he would trust in Jesus again one day. But I don't know if he will. He didn't live a life unsaved from the world. And sadly, that suggestion that the faith that he claimed to have in Christ in the first place wasn't really there. It really pains me to say that. But it may well be true. If we compromise when it comes to putting God's word into action, acting on what we have received, we are in real danger 
our religion is worthless. Our faith in Christ could well be a deceit. That's what James is saying. If there's no evidence that we're controlling our speech, if there's no sign of us caring for the helpless, for those who can't care for themselves, we're completely apathetic to them. And if there's no indication whatsoever that we're seeking to remain unstained from the world as we receive God's word and we work out what filthiness and clean it really is, well then we need to be honest with ourselves. We need to ask, am I really practicing true religion? Do I really have a faith in Christ that bears itself out in practice? James says true religion, a true working out of faith, involves real results. Results that are the evidence of God graciously at work in our hearts by his word. I pray that we are the ones, uh, this week, who will not deceive ourselves but rather we will be taking time to listen, to humbly receive and obey God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your living word. We thank you that through it you brought us to faith in your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to be faithful in the way that we treat it this week. Lord, will we be those who listen closely, who humbly receive it, and who carry it out in our lives. For your glory. Amen.